Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Ever have a run-in with authority? I eased the billy club from the belt of one of the police officers. We performed for a panel of producers who agreed that we should go on to the actual taping of the show in front of the celebrity judges, who at the time were Howie Mandel, Sharon Osbourne, and Piers Morgan. And the police officer says, look, ma'am, if you want to see the queen, all of a sudden out of the sky, a helicopter lands on our front yard. And there is my dad jumping out in his military uniform. I'm Kyone Wolf. Listen to some of my favorite stories from the mouth off. The live storytelling show I've been hosting at the Mark Twain House. Join me for a very special episode of Audacious after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. For eight years, I hosted a storytelling show in partnership with the Mark Twain House called The Mouth Off. Five times a year, seven storytellers would take the stage with their true story on that night's theme. Now that the pandemic has canceled the remainder of this year's season, I wanted to take the opportunity to play you some of my favorites. You'll hear all sorts of stories in this episode, but the one thing they all have in common? They all deal with relationships to authority figures, like parents, employers, or police. The one to get us started is the Reverend Dr. Shelley Best. She's the president and CEO of the Conference of Churches in Hartford, and she's the director and chief curator of the 224 Ecospace, a social enterprise in Hartford. Here's Shelley's story from February of 2018. So it was the fall of 1968. And I was a six-year-old colored girl living in Norfolk, Connecticut. How did we get there? My father was a civil rights activist, and he thought that we should put our bodies on the line and live the cause. My father, even though he was a soldier and even though he was an activist, he was mad most of the time. He was mad at the system. He was mad at injustice. He was mad about his boss on the job. He was mad about a lot of things. It was that kind of time. And you see, you have to understand that my parents came from an age where they were like, Really good Negro people. See, really good Negroes were like the press and curl kind of people, like pressed shirts and really clean and polished people living up in Norfolk. We wanted to be polished people in Norfolk, as if the press and curl would make a difference in a place like Norfolk being the only black family in the town. But anyway, that's what my parents wanted to do. And in the meantime, things were getting kind of funny with my older brother and sister. See, I was six, but my brother was 15 and my sister was 16. And so even though my parents were the press and curl clean type of people, my older brother and sister were starting to evolve into something else. It was the 60s, if you can remember the times. Those neat, clean parents started to raise these different kinds of teenagers. 
See, my mother at the time, she was really focused on my baby sister, who was four years younger than me. So her hands were full. And then my older sister, Sandy, who was 12 years older than me, Sandy was really into fashion and style. And Sandy was the first one to decide in our family that she was going to have an afro, which was really radical in my family at that time. And Sandy had these really cool go-go boots. And some of you don't understand the significance of white patent leather go-go boots. But my sister Sandy was super cool with these go-go boots and she started cutting off her skirts and hiding the fact that she was wearing mini skirts to school because my parents didn't know that she had a secret wardrobe that she would carry in her bag along with the white go-go boots. <laughs> and then meanwhile, my older brother, who was nine years older than me, he was a jock, so people liked him because he played basketball and he played soccer. So people liked him, they enjoyed him, they thought he was good people, he was enjoyable. But I can remember as a child kind of watching what's happening with my brother and my sister, and I knew something was going on, but at the time I didn't really fully understand that they were high, they were tripping, they were doing all kinds of drugs that my parents didn't understand at the time. And so I can recall going out in the backyard one day and my brother was sitting there in this like fringe jacket. He had his fringe on and he had one of those headbands and he had these little round John Lennon sunglasses and he was just sort of sitting up on a rock and he was like, hey Jude, make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Hey, so don't let it into your heart that you can start to make it better. You have to understand better, better. Ah! <laughs> that was my brother, and as this six-year-old, I'm kind of like, something's not right here. And see, <laughs> there was a difference in how my brother got treated, who was younger than my sister, and how my sister got treated. Anytime my sister wanted to go out, she had to bring me. Anytime my brother went out, nobody said anything. So my sister would go out to these events and bring me with her. And I remember they would do really weird stuff, like we'd go out into the woods, and we'd park cars in the middle of the woods. And I'm a little six-year-old with my sister, and they would all dance around the cars, and then sometimes they would just stare. <laughs> As a child, I knew something was coming, and I knew my parents were not fully prepared for that something. But my father, he had a different relationship with me than the older two. It was like we were a new family for the younger two. And my father would take me to the activist meetings because he wanted me to learn about the cause. And he was a leader of this group called Concern, which was about interracial gatherings of people and like socialists and writers and artists would all come together. And then my father decided that I needed to have a sense of independence. He would take me out to the front yard and have me gather worms so I could have my own business, gather night crawlers. And so I'd go out with my flashlight and I had a tub and I would gather these night crawlers and we'd sell them for 65 cents a dozen, and I was making good money. <laughs> so about a year later, 
I was making lots of money because I diversified my product line. I was also <laughs> selling these little potholders that you make on the little loom. I was <laughs> selling those too as well as my worm. So I was making good money. And I remember my brother coming up to me in my room and I was supposed to be asleep and he came up and he's like, hey, hey, can I get some of your money? And I'm like, why? I, I need your money because I'm going to be hitchhiking to a concert called Woodstock and I need your money so that way I can go to the concert. And I'm like, okay, sure, take my money. Didn't fully understand what Woodstock was, but that's where my brother went. Now, my sister Sandy was upset because she wanted to go to Woodstock too, but my mother wouldn't let her out of the house. And so she just sat around the house that day, just sort of staring at the wall. Now I know she was tripping. She was <laughs> tripping in the house. The next morning, early in the morning, she got up and she came into my bedroom and she said, Shelly, I'm going up into the woods and I'm taking a walk with our bulldog and I'm Afghan and that's where I'm going. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so my mother got up in the morning and she's like, where's Sandy? And I'm like, she took a walk in the woods with a bulldog and an Afghan. And my mother's like, we don't have a bulldog. <laughs> Next thing I know, they call the state police. And the state police, because we didn't have regular police in Norfolk, Connecticut. So the state police had arrived and they said to me, okay, what I want you to do, go get some of her shoes so we can pick up her scent and we can find her. So I went and picked out these lovely green suede chunk heel shoes with the little buckle on the front. And I brought them to the police so they could get her scent. And so they started looking for her. And my father was at National Guard drill that weekend. So they called my father at Camp Dempsey, because that was the governor at the time, and had my father come home from drill. And at the time, there were these police cars and all this activity and people looking for my sister. And as this little then seven-year-old child, I'm sitting on the porch and I'm kind of watching all this going on and people are seeing me but not seeing me they see me but they don't see me and I see the cars and I see the activity and all of a sudden I hear this sound in the atmosphere and all the leaves on our lawn start blowing around and all of a sudden out of the sky a helicopter lands on our front yard and there is my dad jumping out in his military uniform he has come to help with the search to find my sister, Sandy. And they see me, but they don't see me. And when it became about nightfall, all of a sudden they found Sandy and they brought her into the house and the Afghan was wrapped around her shoulders. She had leaves in her hair and apparently she had also taken my father's ivory-handled rifle but she had lost it up in the woods. And I heard them say, she had a bad trip. And they were gonna take her down to Newtown State Hospital. So they put Sandy in the car and at the time she saw me, but she didn't see me. And then all of a sudden the radio came on and Sandy looked at me and recognized me, and they started singing, Are you going to Scarborough Fair? 
Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true love of mine. Are you going to Scarborough was the Reverend Dr. Shelley Best. You can see her work at the224.org. Next, Greg Garcia is a high school English teacher, musician, artist, and self-described miscreant, as you'll hear in this story. It's from September of 2015. When I was a young man, I made a lot of really bad decisions. All of them. <laughs> when I was 19, I was going to art school down in New Haven. And uh, we took a trip in the fall to New York City, field trip, uh, to see some galleries. And they dropped us off at the Met and gave us a map, told us, go see art. So my friend John and I, uh, we went and saw some art. And then we got bored and decided to not see art anymore. <laughs> so we wandered away and uh, got kicked out of a pizza place in Little Italy and uh, made our way back to the Met, waiting for the buses. We were standing on the concrete, and, and I looked over, uh, John and I standing next to each other, and there, maybe 20 paces away, was uh, this girl talking to two police officers whose back were to me. Now, two things to know about this girl who was with us on the trip. She was a classmate. One, she was beautiful. And two, she knew it. She's talking to these police officers, and they're kind of leaning in, as though she had a gravitational field and had caught them in it. And I knew that this was my moment. The moment to make the greatest of all mistakes. And I did. You'll balk at this part. But I told John to wait and not to move. And I walked and I made my way through the crowd of students to the police officers. And I eased the billy club from the belt <laughs> of one of the police officers. <laughs> now, if you don't know what a billy club is, you should go. <laughs> but it's a club about this long, invented by some cruel bastard named Billy. <laughs> specifically for beating civilians. And I wanted it. And so I took it. <laughs> I took the Billy Club. And I put it in my jacket. And I walked away. And I would love to tell you that I still have it in a glass case in my home, <laughs> ready 
to pass to my children and their children as the greatest souvenir of all time. But that's not why we're here. <laughs> Instead, I made the second greatest mistake of my life. Because when I got back to John, he looked confused, not amazed. So I showed it to him, which whenever I say that, it never turns out well. But that's another story. So I pulled it out and I showed it to him. And just at that precise moment, the girl looks at me for the first time. And I remember the words, isn't that yours? And the cops turn, and I have the club. <laughs> it was choice time, because they were coming at me fast. They had the gate, the purposeful gate. I thought quick, and this is what I did. As though I were bowing and giving my allegiance to the new lord of the kingdom. <laughs> And I waited, and I didn't feel anything hit me. <laughs> and I looked up, and he took the club back. And I wasn't arrested or beaten. And I think that there are three reasons for that. One, who could beat this? <laughs> Two, he was so embarrassed with his fellow cops standing right there, that he had had his billy club taken from his belt, that he couldn't do anything. And three, white privilege. <laughs> Thank you. I got a leg up because of my skin tone. White privilege. This white privilege. That was Greg Garcia. After the break. We performed for a panel of producers who agreed that we should go on to the actual taping of the show in front of the celebrity judges, who at the time were Howie Mandel, Sharon Osbourne, and Piers Morgan. We'll hear more stories from The Mouth Off, a live storytelling show I created and hosted in partnership with the Mark Twain House. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. My people just dying for nothing. Dying for nothing. Anytime I talk about it, you say that we crying for nothing. Crying for nothing. They killing my sisters and brothers, then try to disguise it as justice. It's a problem until you admit it. We can't even have a discussion. Can't have a discussion. You never pay us what we worth. Never. I'm guessing we're not in the budget. No. They only ever gave us dirt. dirt. So we had to get it out the gutter. They poisoned the community. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, we're listening back to some of my favorite stories from The Mouth Off, a live storytelling show I created and hosted in partnership with the Mark Twain House. That's now on hiatus because, well, pandemic. All the stories we're hearing this hour involve a close proximity to authority figures. And this next one, those authority figures are celebrity judges and middle schoolers. Jason Sims owns and operates Sims Public Relations in Deep River, Connecticut, and he told his story at our February 2016 show. So I moved here from Portland, Oregon, and uh, I don't know how much you know about that town, but it's pretty much a requirement that you have some sort of a wacky creative project. And I was the lead singer of the Metal Shakespeare Company, which uh, was a five-piece metal band in the style of Iron Maiden or Twisted Sister, and we wore Elizabethan garb, pantaloons, tights, 
of lace-up velvet tops with some 80s flair, like high tops, or the tights might be pink or leopard print. All of our lyrics were pulled straight from the bard. So we'd actually do scenes from the bard. And it started as a joke, but everyone in the band was a really good musician, except for me. The silly conceit of the act just gave them the freedom to play the over-the-top solo that they always had in them and wanted to unleash. And so we created this really out-of-control show. And before long, we were touring the West Coast, playing colleges and Shakespeare festivals and clubs. And around this time, about four years in, we got a note from a producer at America's Got Talent. She wanted us to try out for the Portland taping of the show. And we'd even get to skip the first round of auditions. So we felt pretty cool walking past that huge line of people on the sidewalk with our ridiculous outfits and our glam rock guitars. And when we got inside, we performed for a panel of producers who agreed that we should go on to the actual taping of the show in front of the celebrity judges, who at the time were Howie Mandel, Sharon Osbourne, and Piers Morgan. The actual taping of the show was a six-hour day, most of which was spent in a sort of backstage purgatory with all the other acts. There was a, like an acapella group in the corner doing these ominous vocal warm-up sounds. And there was a, a troupe of preteen girls with a, like a hip-hop dance routine, and they were just sort of leap across the room periodically. And we were interacting with all these people in character, and they started to think we were insane which is a pretty high bar in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, but the producers liked it, and they, they, we caught their attention, and they, they sent a camera crew just to follow us. And I wondered if that crew caught our reaction when we saw the school buses pull up outside. Because as it turned out, in order to fill the 2,000-seat venue in the middle of a weekday, they had to bus in school children who, you know, famously love Shakespeare and... <laughs> Definitely appreciate metal parodies. And uh, so I walk out, introduce the concept of the band, and they tell us to you know, go ahead and perform. And I say, Hamlet, act five, scene two. And we launch into the last scene of the play where everyone dies. And normally this gets a great response. There's moshing and headbanging and people are laughing because we're trying to sword fight and play guitar at the same time. But this time, ah, there's a buzzer. One of the judges hit their buzzer. There's three X's above the stage. And if a judge hits their buzzer... An X lights up, and if all three X's go off, the lights turn out, and they just chastise you and send you home. But, uh, and like a minute in, ah, another buzzer. So we got one more buzzer left, otherwise we don't even get to finish our song. And we're coming to the big finale where I, as Hamlet, kill Claudius, the lead guitarist, before I die from a wound from a poison blade. And as I lay there, on the ground, the music cuts out dramatically. And normally at this point, people cheer, it's wonderful. But this time, like a slow wave, the booze rumble from the back of the theater. And they crash onto the stage and I just lay there taking in this experience of getting booed by 2,000 middle schoolers at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. And I rise to my feet to face the judges, still in character. And I, uh, basically at this point, just hoping for good quotes for our press materials. And uh, Howie Mandel delivers. He says, you guys are crazy, and uh, this, you guys can really play. And so I'm really glad that Howie Mandel, the guy from Bobby's World, is picking up on our vibe. 
but he votes no. And so next up is Sharon Osborne, and she kind of interviews us, and we tell her, Milady, tis our highest aspiration to perform in a production of King Lear alongside thine husband, the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Because in the next round, you get a celebrity mentor, and we're gunning for Ozzy Osbourne. And so she takes the bait and votes yes. And now it's all up to Piers Morgan. And Piers Morgan, as it turns out, has a lot to say about the Metal Shakespeare Company, mostly involving our accents being terrible, our music being god-awful racket, and my favorite quote, that we are desecrating a great playwright. And uh, that appeared in every press release that I sent from then on. By the time the show aired, the band had broken up. And we tuned in to see if they used any of our footage, though. And they did. At the very beginning of the show, uh, there's a montage of all the acts that performed. And for a split second, it cuts to me in my floppy Shakespeare hat and frilly collar in full falsetto face, hitting a high note. Ah! <laughs> and that's it. They didn't use any of the other six hours of footage that they shot of us. But I guess you could say that the Metal Shakespeare Company went out on a high note. Thank you. That was Jason Sims singing and on stage at the Mark Twain House. And since telling this story, he'd swapped out his Elizabethan accent for an Irish brogue as a member of the New Haven Gaelic Players. It's unclear to what degree he's using falsetto. Next up, Lucy Ferris, writer in residence at Trinity College and author of many books, including her latest, A Sister to Honor. She told her story in April of 2014. I spent most of my senior year of college writing letters to a guy named John Martin, who ran Black Sparrow Press, which as far as I knew was the only literary publisher in Los Angeles, which was where I was living at the time. And John Martin would write me back, saying he had no positions open at present, until finally I took a job at a pastry shop in Beverly Hills, where I had to pay almost as much to park my car as they were paying me. And so I wrote John Martin and said I was going to have to go to New York and seek my fortune there. And he wrote back and said he might have a position open after all. John Martin ran Black Sparrow out of a gazebo next to the swimming pool behind his house. And he installed me in a little L of the gazebo, where I thought I would be editing. But I didn't do much editing. I did mostly bookkeeping and invoice typing. This was before computers and before Xerox machines, and I typed invoices to all the bookstores that then existed all across our great land. We had a fabulous list of authors. We reprinted people from the 20s, like Theodore Dreiser and Wyndham Lewis. We had beat poets like Robert Creeley and Ed Dorn, surrealists like Gerard Malanga, feminist poets like Diane Wachowski, Holocaust poets like Charles Reznikoff and Carl Rakosi, the early short stories of Joyce Carol Oates, and that great Los Angeles street poet Charles Bukowski, who most of you know because of Barfly. But even then, he was our biggest seller, and I would type Bukowski, 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 until it flew in one gesture from my fingers, and I said I could type Bukowski like the wind. John said we were so busy that there was no time at all for me to take a normal lunch break. But if I liked, I could change my clothes in the basement underneath his house and take a little dip in the pool. And while I was drying off on my own time, I could proofread the copy for the book catalog in the, one of the lounge chairs next to the pool. The rest of the time, 
after I finished rejecting the unsolicited manuscripts, choosing one of the three rejection slips that we sent to the authors who wanted us to publish them, I typed invoices. And every now and then, I would be massaging my hand after having typed Bukowski one too many times, and I would look up at the wall to my left, a wall that John couldn't see, and on it was a charcoal by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti was a poet who had founded City Lights Books and City Lights uh, Publishers in San Francisco, and now I saw he was also an artist. And the, far, the charcoal was of a woman in, in profile, leaning back on her hand with her legs straight out in front of her, and her face turned away from the viewer. And farther down around her shins was an oversized face of a young man with his eyes shut. And I couldn't decide if he was dreaming her or she was dreaming him. But we weren't alone all the time in the gazebo. People would come visit. Bukowski came and visited. He'd bring his cigars and a couple of six-packs, and he'd lean back and complain about his girlfriends and do finger paintings. He did a finger painting of me. He gave me a red miniskirt and high heels and gold stockings and big Texas hair. And I said, Chuck, it doesn't look anything like me. And he said the same thing that Picasso apparently said to Gertrude Stein. It will one day, my dear. It will. <laughs> well, after I'd worked for John for about a year or so, he called late one night and said there was something he had to discuss that was terribly, terribly important, and it couldn't possibly wait till morning. Could he come by? And I said, sure, and I changed back into my office clothes, and he came by in his Jaguar and picked me up and drove off to a quiet street and pulled over at the curb. And he said that he really wanted Black Sparrow to fly. He thought that Black Sparrow could soar like an eagle now that he had hired me, and I could go out around the country and over to Europe and find the great writers of our time, and I could go to booksellers' conventions, and I could lecture at colleges and universities, and it would be like Paris in the 20s all over again, except Southern California in the 70s. But there was a problem. He'd lost focus. He couldn't get any work done because he'd decided that he was in love with me, and only if I would sleep with him could Black Sparrow soar like an eagle? <laughs> and if I would not sleep with him, it would plummet to the ground. <laughs> and I couldn't work there anymore. He gave me a little while to think about it. I thought about it. I didn't want to quit. It was the only job I wanted for my whole life. It never occurred to me to sue him. Nobody had ever heard of sexual harassment. I, I thought it was my fault because I'd gone swimming in the pool. And then I thought, well, if I'd had a boyfriend, he would never have made a proposition like that. So I went out as quickly as possible. There was a workshop on ethnic poetry being given, and I went to the workshop on eth ethnic poetry, and there was this tall, good-looking guy. He looked kind of like the Marlboro Man. And I seduced him as quickly as I possibly could, and I made him my boyfriend. And I went in the next week, and I told John, in mostly honesty, that I was terribly sorry, but I'd found that I could not sleep with him because I seemed to have acquired a boyfriend. <laughs> I thought this would solve the problem. 
John continued to call me late at night. However, now he called me to tell me that he had gone over the invoices and that I had typed Bukowski instead of Bukowski or Rakowski instead of Rakosi and that his 16-year-old daughter could do better bookkeeping than I could and I was an idiot and he should fire me. And this went on and on for a few months until I developed colitis and I finally quit the job. And then a funny thing happened after I quit. John started giving me editing work. I got to correct Charles Bukowski's spelling. I got to write the book catalog and get paid for it. I even got to proofread a cache of obscene letters from James Joyce to his wife, Nora, that some scholar had found deep in a library somewhere and that we were going to publish in a special limited edition titled The Darling Little Bird Letters. (laughs) So finally, Marlboro Man and I were moving to San Francisco and I came in with my final invoice for John, and he asked how much he owed me, and I said, he owed me $350, but I said, you know what, I'll take the Ferlinghetti instead. And he said, my Ferlinghetti, are you crazy? Do you have any idea how much that's worth? And I said, no, but I knew he didn't like it because he put it on a wall where he couldn't see it, and I was really fond of it. But if it was worth a whole lot, he could just forget it. He could give me the 350 and I'd be on my way. He pulled out his checkbook, he dipped his fountain pen, he held it poised in the air for a moment, then he put the pen back, got out from around his desk, and pulled the Ferlinghetti off the wall. I have it still. It graces the cover of my book of short stories, Leaving the Neighborhood. It sits on the wall behind my computer. It does absolutely nothing to soften the blow to the hopes of a 22-year-old. But I look at it now and then still, and I still wonder if he is dreaming her or she is dreaming him. Thank you. That was Lucy Ferris. You can find all her work at Lucy Ferris. That's F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Dot com. When we get back, without even thinking, as soon as I felt the knife, I pull it out and immediately begin gushing blood. More live stories from the mouth off at the Mark Twain House. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, we're listening to stories recorded at the Mouth Off, my storytelling show in partnership with the Mark Twain House. Obviously, live, in-person events aren't happening right now, but this hour, I'm playing some of my favorites from the archives. And the theme of the show today, authority figures. Our next story comes from Kirsten Estabrooks from Higginham, Connecticut, and her story was from September of 2014. I had just finished work at a local town hall, which will remain unnamed, And uh, I was on my way to my car, and my three-and-a-half-year-old nephew called me on uh, the iPhone to FaceTime. So as I exited the building, I answered the phone, and I'm looking at his handsome little face, and of course, I'm only paying attention to that. 
And I get outside and it's blustery and windy and cold and I'm, all I'm thinking about is, oh my God, I gotta get into my car as soon as possible. I whip open the door, still looking at him, and jump into my car and immediately drop the phone and reach back to dislodge what I thought was a pen and wrap my hand around a knife, which is now buried completely to the hilt in my hip area. So without even thinking, as soon as I felt the knife, I pull it out and immediately begin gushing blood. And I'm staring at this knife, which is now covered in, of course, my body. And I think, I need help. And I look around, and there is nobody in this parking lot. So I drop the knife, and I put my hand over my hip, and I grab my phone, and of course it's dead. So I'm like, okay, well, I definitely got to get some help, because I really don't know if I fit anything vital or not. I think, all right, there's a police station right here, because I don't know where the nearest hospital is. So I drive down to the police station, and um, I'm trying to you know, look at it. And so I, you know, open up my pants and I'm kind of going like this and I can't see it. So, and it's gushing. There's like a lot of blood everywhere. My hand is covered in blood and everything. So I walk into the police station and they have a lobby and there's a two-way mirror with a little phone. So I pick up the phone and I go, I don't exactly know how to say this without sounding dramatic, but I've stabbed myself and I need some help. And the girl on the other end of the line goes, who did this to you? And I go, oh, no, 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 it was an accident. I, I just, I, there was a knife in my car and she goes, you should not cover up for somebody that it's committed a crime against you. You tell me who did this. And I was like, Okay, but I hate to point out the bigger picture to you <laughs> that I am still bleeding and I really don't know how bad this is. So how about you send somebody out? So she goes, fine. And hangs up. <laughs> so the next thing you know, this cop comes sauntering out the door and he looks at me and stops in the most cartoonish way possible and goes, oh my God, you're bleeding. <laughs> I've been trying to tell you guys this. And he goes, stay there. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm not going anywhere. So he comes running back out, gloves on, and a huge wad of gauze. And he grabs two chairs and puts them together and goes, lie down here. <laughs> and I look around the lobby and I go, seriously? Okay. So here I am, lying across a couple of plastic chairs in the middle of the lobby. And the cop shoves this massive wad of gauze onto my butt and then leans back and goes, so who did this to you? <laughs> and I said, nobody, it was an accident. And he goes, no, seriously, who did this to you? And I said, listen, I was eating my lunch earlier today. I, it was chicken and rice. I went to grab the knife and fork and I dropped the knife. I thought it went under the seat, but clearly it had lodged in the seatbelt. I didn't see it. I jumped in the car. There it is. And he goes, he's looking at me rather dubiously like this is not true. And I said, look, here's my keys. There's my car, go get the knife. So he goes out to my car, he comes walking back in with the knife in an evidence bag. <laughs> Dude, that's a four inch stab wound. <laughs> I'm like, I I'm aware. <laughs> so I said, so uh, how about, can you tell me where the nearest hospital is? And he goes, oh no, I, I called the ambulance. They'll be here in a minute. So they load me in the ambulance. They take me the two mile trip to the hospital. 
And uh, they go to take me in admitting, and the girl says to me, I'm lying face down on this gurney now, and she goes, on a scale from one to ten, can you rate your pain? And I said, the stabbing? Uh, probably a three. And the ambulance attendant goes, a three, a three. She's screaming. She goes, I have people that rate a paper cut an eight. She holds up the knife in the evidence bag. This is the knife. This is the knife. Look at that. I was like, okay, but it doesn't really hurt that much anymore. So they wheel me into trauma. So as I'm lying there, and now I'm propped on a pillow with my butt hanging out, and I can't do anything but look at the television, which is right in front of me, and it's on a program which is for parents who are about to have a baby boy and trying to make the decision whether or not to have their son circumcised. (laughs) And I'm watching this, and for some unknown reason, they decide to do a simulation on a full-size penis. So when the scalpel comes out and starts cutting, I was like, no, no, no one ever cuts a full size. Why? Why is this happening? So it gets over, and I think, thank God. And it starts up again. It was on a continuous. So finally, my friend Greg walked in in order to uh, pick me up from the hospital. And I said, for the love of God, shut the TV off. And he's like, why? And I go, okay, watch. And this came on. He slammed it off. So, um, so then they, they basically tell me that for a stab wound, it has to heal from the inside out. So they irrigate it a little bit and then throw a Band-Aid on and send me home. So Greg and I get some food, because this has been a three and a half hour adventure, and we're sitting at my house, and uh, we're about to watch TV, and my phone rings. The guy I was dating, who had made the chicken and rice in the morning that sent me on this adventure in the first place, and he goes, where have you been? I've been calling your phone. You know, I can't get a hold of you. What is going on? And I, and I said, well, actually, I spent the last, you know, four hours at the hospital. <clears throat> I stabbed myself with a steak knife, that I was going to use to cut your chicken this morning. And, you know, basically I, I stabbed the, the steak knife all the way in me. And he goes, hold up. You thought you were going to need a knife to cut my chicken. <laughs> Needless to say, he's my ex-boyfriend. That was Kirsten Estabrooks. Our final storyteller of the hour is Becky Beth Benedict. She's a farmer's daughter and theater teacher, originally from North Dakota. Her story is from the September 2013 show. My mom, born and raised, grew up in North Dakota, middle of nowhere, for those of you who aren't from the United States. Conservative, religious, modest. So she had the, um, the fortune of actually getting a job at a corporate travel agency. At one point, they did an appreciation day where an airline donated two plane tickets to anywhere in Europe. And my mom won these. Now, the response with her family and friends back there is different than if somebody in this room won plane tickets to Europe because we'd all be like, woo, yeah, right? They were like, huh, what would you do with that? (laughs) You know, if you want it, like in the United States, you could fly to Denver. And I'm thinking, you could drive to Denver. So my mom called me and was, you know, bemoaning her luck. And I'm like, Mom, 
I will go with you. And she was A, first shocked that I'd be willing to travel with my mother in public, and B, concerned that we did not speak many languages. In fact, just one. So I told her, pick a country, I will learn the language. No problem, I can handle this. So she picked England. <laughs> yeah, I almost mastered that language. So we set off on, I believe it was only five days, but it seems like 50 days that we spent in England. First day of traveling, we're a little wound up. You know, planes late, Heathrow hell. You know, your room isn't ready, but you're tired, so you're trying to sleep in the lobby, balanced on your suitcase kind of crap. I don't know if it was the next day or perhaps right after dinner. We were wandering down the street, and I see a sex shop, and I'm going to pop in and see what they've got there at the sex shop. <sighs> Remember, mom, religious conservative North Dakota. I was probably emboldened by the wine I had drank. My mother, though, was afraid to stay out in the street by herself because, you know, London's scary. She was also afraid to let me go into a sex store by myself. So I think there was also mixed in a last-ditch attempt to maybe save her marriage with some lingerie or something like that. So mom walks into the sex store with me, and we kind of just make a really quick lap, and I think she tries not to look at much while I'm like, eh. And that's, that was it. That was the whole sex shop thing for me. I'm, I'm good. And the next morning, I wake a little bit before the alarm, and I realize mom is not in her bed. Where is my mom? Where is my mom? And she's kneeling in the corner by the chair. And I'm like, Mom, are you okay? Like, like, is this a heart attack? Is this it? What's going on? She said, I just couldn't sleep all night long. I had to get up and pray for forgiveness for walking through that sex shop. <laughs> and we did all the normal traveler things, too. We went to the Parliament Building. We saw Big Ben, Buckingham Palace, the London Eye, Trafalgar Square, Kew Gardens. We did the Globe Theater, London Symphony Orchestra, all that stuff that you want to shove into that trip to London. And on the last day, that we, last full day before we flew out, last thing that we have to check off our list is to go to St. Paul's, which is incredibly important. And I don't know why, because my mom is Pentecostal and I'm like a non-believer. But it was really important that we go to St. Paul's. So we walk up to St. Paul's and at every entrance, there is police officers blocking entry. I'm like, oh, this is not boding well. I wanted to shove one more thing into this trip. So I walk up to the police officer to say, you know, this is our last day here, blah, 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 American, blah, blah, blah. And the police officer says, look, ma'am, if you want to see the queen, you need to walk down here, go to the left of the bridge, and stand there with the rest of the people. I said, okay, got it, got it, got it. So we start to follow the route that the police officer had laid out for us. And about that time, the congregation from St. Paul's dismisses and begins to flood the street. So we have conservative British people dressed for church going, flooding the streets. And I look over at my mother, who is dressed in grape purple t-shirt with Mickey Mouse on it, a big baseball hat, hot pink with an extra wide brim. And I say, blend in. So we try and slip in with the congregation so we can be seated a little closer to where the queen is going to make her appearance. And it works. 
somehow it works. And the queen indeed does come to the bridge in her little lavender suit with her lavender gloves and her lavender hat and her lavender pocketbook. And she says a few things and she does a little wave and we take pictures and there's fireworks and there's dancing. Like I could not have planned anything this good. It was totally serendipitous that we got to see the queen when we went to London on our last day there. Um, a few years later from that, I uh, saved up, took an extra job, and took my mom to Ireland. We are English, Scotch, and Irish, so she had such a great time in England, she wanted to go to all the countries from our heritage. When we went to Ireland, she said, well, can't we go to Scotland too? And I said, yeah, next time. Next time we'll go to Scotland. And she kept bringing it up. And I said, mom, if we go, we won't be able to see all of Ireland. So, you know, she's like, well, no, I want to see all of that. And she kept on it. And I said, Mom, do you want to tour Scotland or do you just want to say you've been? And she says, I just want to say I've been because I realized she's afraid there's no next time. So we took from Belfast, we took a ferry over Scotland. We had lunch, we saw a castle, checked it off the list and head back to Ireland. Uh, last month, I went home to visit Mom who has stage three of the three stages of multiple myeloma bone cancer. And all I can think of when I saw her was God save the queen. Thank you. That was Becky Beth Benedict from my live storytelling series, The Mouth Off, in partnership with the Mark Twain House. If and when we continue these live events, you can find more information at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org slash audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag AudaciousPublic. Thanks for listening.